Hello, and welcome to the Revelation to John. My name is J.R. Foresteros, and I am the teaching pastor at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene in Dayton, Ohio. You can find me on my blog at jrforesteros.com. And if you have any questions as you go through this podcast, you can email me at jrforesteros at gmail.com. That's jrforesteros at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast as well as to my sermon podcast by searching for me in iTunes or clicking the link on my blog. To aid you in going through this study, you can also download a couple of different resources, both the PowerPoint slides that I use when I teach and also a note sheet if you like to take notes and they're good things to save for later. You can download both of those things at my blog by searching for the Revelation study and then uh, each note sheet and PowerPoint slide is downloadable from the link on the sermon series engine each week. Finally, a note on the format of this podcast. Uh, I am recording this as I am teaching a class, so you often will not be able to hear some of the comments and feedback that the class members make. I will do my best to say those back into the microphone for the podcast, but in case you don't hear those things, uh, I'm sorry, that's just the nature of the format and my recording limitations. All that said, thanks a lot for listening. I hope that you enjoy the podcast, and without any further ado, here is the Revelation study. started with Revelation chapters 6 and 7. Uh, some review as we get going. Uh, we started out this whole thing with seven messages to seven churches. John, who is a prophet in this network of churches, was on the island of Patmos. He was there in exile. All we know is something having to do with his uh, serving God and remaining faithful to Jesus. So while he's there, it's Sunday. He's worshiping in spirit with all of his fellow churches who are all worshiping on the Lord's Day. And all of a sudden, he has a vision of Jesus who appears to him in this very magnificent, terrifying, fantastic form and gives him uh, letters, messages that go to the seven churches. And so we started in chapters two and three with seven messages to these seven different churches. And we saw that all of them are responding in different ways to the tension that comes from confessing some other Lord than Caesar's. So if you remember, they're in Rome, they're in the far eastern part of the Roman Empire in the province of Asia, what we call today Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. And they're in a, they're in a place where there's a lot of pro-Roman activity. And so they are struggling. Some of the churches have been faithful to Jesus and they're suffering for it. Some of the churches are compromising in various ways. We have different groups of false teachers circulating throughout the churches, advocating for some kind of uh, compromise with Rome. And, and some of the churches are allowing them. Some of them are keeping them at arm's length. And some of the churches have compromised so fully with the culture that it's unclear if they're even really actually churches at this point. Uh, if you, you know, the letter to Laodicea, the letter to, the, to Sardis, where he said, you, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're actually dead. And so into this, into this milieu of all of these different uh, messages in all these different churches, Jesus is revealing himself. And so what happened then, what we began with next week, was John actually gets to go Wizard of Oz style behind the veil of reality, right? The, the door of heaven opens up, and he hears a voice that says, come up here, and he's immediately caught up into heaven. And so from this point on, moving forward, and this is where we really see it today, uh, things are happening in heaven, and then those are causing things to happen down on earth. And so we want to pay attention to what's going on in heaven, what's happening on earth, and what's the difference between the two, what's the relationship between the two. But when John gets up to heaven, he sees the cosmic throne room that's familiar from several of the prophetic books, 
Isaiah, Ezekiel, things like that. Uh, he sees all create, you know, sim- symbols of all of creation, all of God's people worshiping. And then in chapter five, we got to the problem. The problem was there's this sealed scroll. It's got seven seals on it. I found a picture of it. I think this is the actual scroll, probably. Um, so it's got seven. It's got seven seals on it, and we talked about how this represented what? Does anyone remember what we talked about last week? What this scroll would have represented for John? Salvation. Yeah, uh, essentially, it was it was it was how God was going to bring about salvation, rescue, the redemption of humanity, God's will on the earth. Uh, we quoted the Lord's Prayer where it says, you know, Jesus taught us pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We understand God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven right now, obviously. Uh, and so this scroll was a royal pronouncement. It was sealed, and it's not in effect, it's not legal, so to speak, until the scroll is unsealed, opened, and read. And so the problem was that no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth was found worthy to open the seals. And we said that that was, that was representing what problem? What is the reason that God's will is not being done? Sin. Yeah, we call that sin, right? And so what, what that meant was, I mean, no, everyone is guilty of sin. And there is no one who was, no one who had conquered sin who could open these seals. And so John begins to weep. And then one of the elders says, wait, wait, wait. Look over there. The Lion of Judah has come conquering and he can open the seals. And so then in a dramatic irony we look and instead of seeing the conquering lion of judah we see a slaughtered lamb and of course this is representing jesus and we talked about how this represented rival eschatologies that that rome had this way called the pax romana the peace of rome that was what they said would lead to human fulfillment that would lead to peace if you follow rome's way rome will give you peace and security and and fullness and life and tranquility and all of that kind of stuff and here we're seeing, and that was, the, that was the tension. A lot of the Christians were starting to say, well, maybe we should just go along with Rome. Maybe we should offer sacrifices in the temples. Maybe we should just do what Rome tells us to do. Maybe we should confess that Caesar is Lord because it sure looks like on earth that Rome's way is the way. But then we, when we were taken up to heaven, we were able to look behind the veil and see the truth of Oz, the great and powerful. We see that, no, actually God is on the throne and that Jesus, the lamb, is in control of the destiny. And so he goes to the throne and he takes the scroll in his hand and then before anything else happens worship breaks out and we have all of these dramatic worship songs and worthy are you because you were slain and you are worthy to open the scroll and so we have this this great statement which is a classic quintessential christian statement that jesus conquered sin and death and therefore that is what makes him worthy to enact god's will to bring about the kingdom of god and so we have all of this worship going on. So that's where we stopped last week. Jesus is standing there, scroll in hand, thumb by the first seal, ready to go. And then we said to be continued. And we all came back this week. <laughs> so this week, we are going to start unsealing the scrolls. Uh, any questions, comments about what all happened last week? Okay, I had my lion and lamb pictures there. Okay, yeah, there we go. So the big question that we're all waiting to see is what is going to happen when the lamb opens the scroll, right? And that is, uh, that is what we're going to be doing. So turn to Revelation chapter 6. We're going to read just the first eight verses, which again are very familiar to every, even people that don't know that they're familiar Then I saw the lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures call out with a voice as of thunder, Come! 
I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature call out, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature call out, Come! And I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's pay and three quarts of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature call out, Come! I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, and pestilence, and by the wild animals of the earth. Okay, so we have four horsemen. These are the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. And what's interesting is that John is drawing from uh, a prophecy in Zechariah. So I have it up here. You can also turn to it. Um, This is Zechariah chapter 6. And so Zechariah is having a series of visions Uh, about God and God's people, and in the sixth chapter, this is his vision. You'll find it very familiar. I looked up and saw four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second chariot black horses, the third chariot white horses, and the fourth chariot dapple gray horses. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my lord? The angel answered me, these are the four winds of heaven going out after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. Uh, The chariot with the black horse goes towards the north country, and the white ones follow it and go with the dappled ones toward the south country. When the steeds came out, they were impatient to get off and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried out to me, lo, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Okay, so uh, what's really interesting about what's going on here, Zachariah, is you uh, you have these four charioteers, these four people who are uh, going out following God's command. And they're referred to as the four winds. They're also, again, these, these horsemen, these charioteers. And so they go both north and south. And again, if you know, I should have put a map of Israel in here, but if you know Israel, uh, Israel's enemies, the big empires that always threatened them, were the Assyrians and the Persians and the Babylonians to the north and then the Egyptians to the south. And Israel, because of where it was geographically, was always caught between those empire powers. And it was all, it, its fate was always intertwined with what was going on with those empires. And so if, you're, if you were living in Israel, and especially you see this in the kings, uh, the kings of Israel and Judah, they were always trying to negotiate between these, imper- these empire powers. And so here in Zechariah, a strong statement is made that even though it looks like those empires are the ones in control, God is actually sending out spirits across the earth to patrol them and to make sure that they're staying within their, uh, their prescribed boundaries and that God is actually the one who is controlling them. Uh, now what's interesting about what happens when John brings this vision into the Revelation is things have changed. Uh, these horsemen are not just patrolling anymore. Now they're actually enacting judgment. And if in Zechariah he was talking he was talking about people who were going north and south against the empires that were threatening God's people, well, what empire was threatening God's people in the Revelation? It was obviously Rome. And so we're already set up, if we were people who uh, knew our Old Testaments backward and forward like these early Christians would have, we're already set up to be expecting that this is some kind of movement by God against Rome, against the empire that's threatening God's people. 
And so we're, as, as, even as we start to look at this, that's, that's what we're kind of anticipating. So we go into the four horsemen, and of course the very first one that we get to is this horseman who's riding a horse and he has a bow in his hand. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but that's because we don't live in the province of Asia in the first century. Uh, in the first century... The, the, uh, this bowman on a horse would have called immediately to mind uh, the Parthians. You can see here in this picture, this is a picture of a Parthian warrior. He's on a horse and he's got a bow in his hand. Uh, just like the Romans were known for their legions, like when you thought of the Roman army, you thought of the legions. Uh, that's what you thought of when you thought of Parthians. They, had, they were famous for their mounted cavalry who were bowmen. And they were, uh, at this time, what they were talking about, they were the only real threat to Roman supremacy. Uh, in 55 BC, a little bit of history for you, uh, there was a Roman proconsul named Crassus who invaded Parthia, and he just got absolutely annihilated. And it was one of the most devastating, humiliating military defeats in all of Roman history. Uh, now, where we are in the first century, at the end of the first century, this is probably about as far from the, the churches of Revelation as we are from the Civil War. Uh, you know, more or less, give or take. And so if you kind of think about how, how long ago the Civil War feels, you know, if you go down to the South especially and spend any time down there, you know that the South will rise again, and is what they always say, and the Civil War hasn't really gone that far from their minds. I mean, it's, it's something that has a lot of cultural impact on that area because it was only 150 years ago, which is a relatively short amount of time, so much more so in the ancient world where things changed much more slowly. So for anyone who's living somewhere on the border between Rome and Parthia, and you can see, so, so here's Parthia right here. Here is where our churches were. It's really not actually that far uh, away. And so this was, this was a, they would, if, if Parthia was ever going to invade, this was the area of the Roman Empire that would feel it first. They were the people, I mean, the, the Parthians were kind of the boogeymen that lived on the other side of their, uh, of their borders. Uh, what's also really interesting about the Parthians, that's a, a great background for this, is that uh, in 55, when Crassus was defeated, the, the standard that the Roman legions always carried into battle was actually stolen. And the loss of the standard, was a, that was part of why Crassus's defeat was so humiliating and degrading. Well, after Augustus defeated Mark Antony and became Caesar of the Roman Empire, uh, he negotiated a peace with Parthia. And part of the peace agreement was that he actually received the standard back from the Parthians. Okay, And that was such a big deal that Augustus made it a, a, an integral part of his Pax Romana campaign when he declared the peace of Rome. And so you can see here's a coin from Augustus's empire, and this is actually a kneeling Parthian returning the legionnaire standard. And on the, the text it says, Caesar Augustus receives the standard. Okay, and so it was part of his military propaganda. You might also remember the statue that we looked at last week. That's again like it's packed with images of Augustus's military victories and his proclamation of peace. And right in the middle of the of the chest piece of the breastplate is a Parthian kneeling and giving the standard up. And so this was, I mean, this was one of Augustus's crowning achievements. And when he was going around proclaiming, "See, Rome brings you peace. Rome is really better," he pointed at the peace that he made with Parthia and said, "See, guys, like I can protect you from the Parthians. Rome can keep you safe from the Parthians." So what's interesting is that in Revelation, the first horse is a Parthian. I looked, and there was a white horse, and its rider had a bow. He had a, cr a crown was given to him, and this is the Stephanon crown, which is, again, the crown of uh, victory or achievement. And he came out conquering and to conquer. So 
using your all of your revelation expertise, uh, what is this horse, what message is this horse sending? It's white, he's got this crown, he's got a bow. Victory. Okay, victory, but what kind of victory specifically for this? Yeah, I mean, this is a Parthian victory, right, over Rome. If you are a person living in the Roman Empire, this is not a good symbol for you. This is scary. This is this has strong echoes of the past. You remember? I mean, the, again, these are these are those guys that are always just across your border. Those of you who remember the Cold War, this was the Russians coming, right? They were always right there. You're always doing the drills. You're you're just you're sure every time you hear an alarm, it's like, oh, is this it? Right? I mean, that's the Parthians for for this people. And so when they see this symbol, immediately they know, oh, this is bad, bad, bad news. Uh, now it actually doesn't get any better as we move through the other horses. Um, the second horse, the red horse, it specifically said that he he did what? He took peace from the earth. Okay, he's given a sword and he takes peace from the earth. Um, the third horse, which was famine, talked about, and again, n- uh, none of the things that it talks about for famine. Uh, a quart of wheat for a day's pay and three quarts of barley for a day's pay. We're like, is that a good price? I don't know if we were trading in barley. But what? What? Uh, if you go back and look at what was going on at the time, that was actually really, really bad inflation. And wheat and barley were considered like basic staple foods that any person would buy and be able to afford. So this would be like paying forty-five or fifty bucks for a McDonald's value meal or something from Chick-fil-A. Okay, I mean it's it's really really bad. Uh, it's like ten times, or you could just think a day's pay. However much you make in a day, that's you know that's what it would cost you for one one McDonald's value meal. You know, not not everyone in your family just for like enough food to feed one person would cost you an entire day's wages. And so of course, and if you're thinking about war that would follow a Parthian invasion, if you're thinking about the kind of peace being taken from the earth and civil strife and unrest everywhere, you know it's going to happen. Inflation's going to happen. Food's going to get scarce. Supply lines interrupted. I mean, this is this is a natural consequence of what happens on the heels of the first two horses. It it is interesting that the olive oil and the wine aren't affected because those are those would be considered more luxuries. You know, you don't have to have those to live. You can get by without them. And those are certainly things that the rich would be more known for having. Um, And those are not affected. It's only the basic staples that any regular person would need to survive. And then finally, again, it shouldn't be a big surprise what the last horse is if we have war, civil unrest, and famine. Death is what follows all of that. Right? Death in the underworld comes riding out, and they take a fourth of the earth. And we'll, we'll actually wait until we get into the trumpets, until we talk about why a fourth, because you'll see there's some escalation going on. But when you say they take a fourth of the earth, what do you mean? Death? Death. Yep. Okay. Yeah, as in fact, as it, sa- as it says, um, they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, famine, and pestilence, and by the wild animals of the earth. Then, so, yeah. Uh, you know, at, at that time, it would have probably been more than that. Rome, it's, at this time, Rome itself, which Rome was the first city in human history to reach a population of a million. And it took another, I think it took about another 500 years after Rome fell to, for another city to reach that. So, But just in the city of Rome itself at this time, there were about a million people. So we're thinking about a quarter of the whole earth. I, I actually really don't know, but certainly a lot, still a, quite a big number of people. Um, so, 
So if you, if you step back from these four horsemen and you look at what's going on in this whole picture, this is, again, a battle of eschatologies. Because Rome said, the Pax Romana is what will provide for you and keep you safe. We will keep the enemies away because no one can stand against the Roman armies. We will keep you safe within our borders. You don't have to worry when you're traveling on our roads. Uh, you know, our famous Roman roads. You don't have to worry about bandits and things like that. Uh, we'll always give you food. In, in fact, one of the things that August, one of the ways that Augustus made himself popular among the people was by giving out free bread and free grain. And when Augustus and Antony were both trying to uh, jockey for position with the people, Antony was down in Egypt with Cleopatra, and and Egypt was where Rome got all of its grain. And so he would he kept he kept raising the grain prices on on Augustus and making him pay more and more and more for grain, trying to bankrupt him so that he would have to quit giving out free grain because you know if Augustus quit giving out free food, everyone would would quit liking him. Because even back then, we liked people that gave us free stuff. So, uh, so, uh, and then of course, there was a bunch of other stuff that happened. But, but that was, Augustus was known, and part of the Pax Romana was you get food. Like, we'll feed you. If you follow Rome's way, you will always have a full belly. Um, that's, that's part of the deal. And so, what happens here is Jesus starts popping these, these seals off this scroll, is the Pax Romana is being undone. And we're getting a glimpse of what happens if you put your faith in a human ideology. Because as we kind of talked about at the end last week, there is no such thing as a human institution or a human ideology that can actually give you peace and prosperity and security. Those are things that only God can give. And so if it really comes down to you, uh, your human ideology, the, the, the ideologies that your culture is teaching and following God, and you have to choose between those two, well, I mean, you can choose whatever you want, but here... Here is what happens when you follow a human ideology. It always is going to come apart at the seams. And it's, it's fascinating to me that the last horseman is death because even, even under the Pax Romana, Rome could not save you from death. Right? I mean, they had no concept of resurrection. They had no concept of deliverance from death. That was, that was an enemy that was going to constantly be with you. And it, and it offered no opportunity for you to be freed from, from death. And so even, it's almost, it's almost like you could say, well, we'll grant you the first three. We'll grant you freedom from war and freedom from civil unrest and, and a full belly. Okay, see you in 70 years. We'll talk then. But, again, the, the, the promise of Christianity, we saw it with the letter to Smyrna, right? Those who remain faithful will not be touched by the, seven, the second death. There's, there's life, there's resurrection, there's hope. Only God can deliver you from, from death. And, and ultimately, truthfully, only God can actually give you all of these other things that you keep are being tempted to look for in Rome and under the Pax Romana. So don't believe the hype. Rome can't actually give you what, you, what it thinks it can give you and what it wants you to think that it can give you. Does that make sense? Okay. Oh, we'll get there. Yeah. Good question. Way to anticipate. Uh, it's not till chapter 20, but we're gonna, we'll get there. <laughs> if you want to peek and read ahead, you can. <laughs> but but you, you're raising a great point, and that, that's part of the beauty of this book is it makes you ask all of these questions. Next week, uh, we're going to get a sneak peek at a character who doesn't actually show up for a few more chapters. He just kind of like pops his head up in a verse and does some stuff and then leaves, and you're like, who is that? And where did he come from? What? You're asking all these questions, and the text is like, moving on. And you have to wait a few chapters until he shows up again. You're like, oh, okay. So the book does that a lot. 
I think a part of that is to invite multiple readings. If you've read it through one time and you've gotten to the second death at the end and you know what that's all about, you go back and reread it through the second time. Oh, I, I see what I see what you're doing here, Revelation. Very good. So, in chapter four, the voice speaks out to John and says, "Come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this." Yes. Now, are are you speaking of the, the these four horses as being contemporary to? The writing of the book of Revelation or something out in the future? Well, they were they were technically in the future in that at the writing of the Revelation, the Pax Romana still held sway and the Roman Empire was still very strong. So in that sense, it was certainly something to come later. Um, the, the, the Pax Romana didn't suffer any kind of uh, huge blows to its credibility at the time of the writing of this book. Um, and, and again, I, I, I think the, the Wizard of Oz example is, is really helpful to see what's going on here. What we're actually... What's actually happening is in the face of this monolithic, seemingly invincible evil empire, we're being taken behind the curtain and saying, see, see what's actually going on? If, you, if you're paying attention behind the scenes, this isn't what it seems like. If you see, and, and you know, Parthia was, a, Parthia was a real threat then. They, were, they didn't defeat Rome, but they were a real threat. Uh, even... Even though Rome told you that it, you were safe within its borders, you certainly weren't all the time. I mean, you could you could still get uh, robbed on its roads. You could still experience some kind of civil unrest. And in fact, even within uh, the, the the living memory of the people reading this letter, there had been a year where four different Caesars had occupied the throne. You know, because they had civil war. Uh, so, uh, and then of course, we know that it's never true that everyone in any empire is actually being fed. Uh, there's always people at the bottom who are struggling, and so part of it's part of it's pulling it back and saying, "Okay, don't believe the propaganda." Like there's always there's always a, a real story going on behind the scenes, below the scenes, and you just have to be paying attention to it, uh, be, because there's no such thing as an empire that is not God's empire, so to speak, God's kingdom that is actually capable of delivering all of these things. Well, going back to the conversation last week, you were talking about things that were happening in heaven but have not happened on earth yet. Um, I don't know, I'm just looking at that verse there in chapter 4, it's kind of like these things would be in a farther future than what you're referencing there. Well, see, but here... Because we still don't have the kingdom of God established here on earth yet. Right. Well, and, and see, here's where we're jumping back and forth, though, because in heaven, Jesus is popping off a seal. On earth, a horseman is riding out. In heaven, he's popping off a seal. And you can imagine... In heaven, it doesn't actually look like anything's happening. I mean, you're just, okay, yeah, he popped off a seal. Like, okay, keep going. We got six more to go, you know. Uh, but but on earth, literally all hell is breaking loose. Uh, and so, it, and it keeps getting it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And so we are actually, I mean, we're actually seeing connections between what's happening in heaven and what's happening on earth. What's happening on heaven and what's happening on earth already uh, in, in the language of Revelation. I guess where I'm going with that is that typically in, in uh, prophecy, They'll have a dualistic application. Something might happen BC, but also it's going to happen later on in the future. And I'm just wondering if it, there isn't that same thing going on here. Uh, I would say there certainly could be. I would also say that this is actually the story of any empire. You know, you could actually take this retrograde and go back to Babylon, Babylon, to the Babylonian Empire, to the Egyptian Empire, to you know, is is four horsemen riding out that different from ten plagues? No. It's still God showing God's sovereignty in the face of human aspirations to, to empire. 
right? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue and getting it, it getting crushed in Daniel. Same same message. You know, you you can pretend that you're in control all you want. You know, you can play big boy on the throne, but that's not the truth, and it will never be the truth. And as long as you keep pretending this way, these are the things that are going to happen. Um, the Roman Empire did eventually fall. Um, you know, every every empire has has gone this sort of way because because they make these claims because they have these aspirations because they can't deliver on it so so i would say it's things that have happened before revelation after revelation and, and are still absolutely are happening today so a lot of people don't take this and say okay this is a specific event in the future and i kind of agree with what you're saying maybe you got to be more general than that but what and, do you say to people who say this is really a specific event in the future we're still looking forward to this. Sure. I, okay, so if, if someone were to say that, I would say, well, it could be. You're absolutely right. But if we let that possibility blind us to the truth that this is also, like, talking about the reality of empire and what happens when humans try to play God, uh, then then I think we are missing something really important in the book. Um, and if this ends up being a prophecy and we see all this stuff play out and, you know, we're sitting there with our Bibles going, yep, 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 well, okay. That's fine. I have no problem with that. But in the meantime, while we still have no idea what that's going to look like, uh, there's still a lot we can learn by trying to enter into the world of the first century readers and trying to, to hear with their ears and, and read with their eyes as well. So, yeah, this ends up being a timeline as well. I'm okay with that. Don't you think this is something that plays out all the time yes. in history? Yes. I mean, probably even with the way Germany was yes. doing and probably by the time that the Antichrist takes over, you're going to see the same thing happen yes. again. Yes. So it's something that God does continually yes. throughout. Yes, it's, it's, it's what happens every time people try to play God. And they do all the time. Yes. It's, it, I mean, that go back to Genesis 3. What did we do? You know, the serpent said, oh, you can be like God. And we were like, I'll take that. Yeah. And that, that was the first sin. And so... Yeah, that, it, it, I agree with you. And, you. and you'll actually see this as we move through Revelation. There's this cyclical feel to it where these things keep happening. And you say, didn't that already get destroyed? Aren't we doing this again? And, and that, that's, in, in my reading, that's the point. It's like, yeah, when, when we try to play God, it brings about death. Because we are not God. Someone, someone said last week when we were talking about eschatologies at the end, the problem is there's no such thing as a person who is without sin. None of us are worthy to open the scroll. And so, yeah, when, whenever we try... Even if we're trying in the name of God, which there have been plenty of so-called Christian empires and Christian aspirations to that, the problem is we're not God. And so when we try to when we try to usurp His place, when we try to establish a throne and rule from it, it goes it goes badly every time. Just remember Russia, how they said they were going to bury everybody, they were going to rule the world. Yes. And yes. Yep. Oh, Rome called themselves the Eternal Empire, right? right? Germany was the uh, the Thousand Year Empire, right? So, yeah. And on top of that, the people, lots of people in those countries lose their lives. Like yes. Yes. Ju just like what we saw with the yes. Four Horsemen, right? Same. All of this happens. Mm -hmm. And you would think we would learn our lesson, but we have not. So. So is the U.S. falling right down? Can we? It looks like we're trying to help people, but is that really what our government's goals are? Yeah. You know, um, I, w I would say that there are probably people in our government who genuinely want to help. I would say there are also probably people in our government that 
think a little bit too highly of themselves and be- yeah and the power i mean the again it's the my way is the best way and if we all do what i think should be done if if the, if i remake the world in my image it will be the best and that's an eschatology right we will have peace we will have prosperity we will have all of this if everyone does it my way and ultimately that's what we all think i mean every every, every time we have a conflict and get mad at someone we're mad because they're not doing stuff my way and obviously Clearly, my way is the right way. Like, I don't know how you cannot see it. It's so, it's as clear as a nose on your face that if you would just get in line and do stuff my way, we would all be fine. That's an eschatology. Now, we may never set up a throne and claim to rule the universe, but we don't have to. Like, that's, again, that's that first sin. That's that, that pride. If you guys were here during our Seven Deadly Sin series, that's why we said every other sin grows out of that root of pride. Because it's setting yourself up instead of God and saying, my will be done, not your will be done. And if you go back to these seven churches, what are they struggling with? They're struggling with how do we find that peace and prosperity? Is it really in following the way of Christ, even if it means death? Or maybe maybe we should follow Rome. Or maybe we should do some kind of mix of the two, which we saw some of the churches doing. Ready for the fifth seal? Uh, a, a point we should also point out, what, who is causing all of this? No. no. Who is causing all of this? Jesus. I mean, he's the one popping all the seals off, right? <laughs> if he just quit, <laughs> apparently none of this would be happening. And so it's tempting, I would think, especially if you're one of these churches and you're experiencing some of this suffering, to go, hey man, knock it off. <laughs> like, leave the thing sealed for a little bit longer. We're all right. Where do you get the back and forth between heaven Jesus in heaven popping the seals and these happening back on earth with the, with the horsemen breaking out. I miss that. Uh, so, uh, 6-1, I saw one of the lamb, the lamb open one of the seven seals. The lamb and the scroll is in heaven. Yeah, got that. And then he looked and a white horse came out and he, and, uh, and so it's, and so all the horses are on earth. The horseman's riding around on the earth. Um, the red horse is taking peace from the earth. Uh, this is wheat and barley and stuff happening on earth. Okay. Death and Hades are taking a fourth of the earth. Right. I, I missed that going through that. Yeah. No, it's a good Sorry, question. we're going to keep seeing that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Uh, actually, now that you say that, not in fifth seal. <laughs> uh, look at the fifth seal. Read along with me. Uh, verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal in heaven, I saw under the altar the soul's of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true. You can hear the accusing tone in their voice. How long will it be before you judge the, and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? I mean, that's the question. That's the question these seven churches are asking, especially if you're Smyrna or Philadelphia, the ones that are holding true and suffering, right? Hey, hey, how much longer is this going to happen? How much longer do we have to deal with this? How much longer are the bad guys going to win? When are you going to put a stop to all of this? When are you going to avenge us? When are you going to bring about justice? It's a good question. The answer is frustrating. They were each given a white robe and told to wait a little longer. White robe means victory. See, you're getting good at this. (laughs) Victory. Now, again, what an odd thing. What, What do you think that... What is that saying? 
Is that what you expect? Is that the kind of message you would expect to be given to these souls who are voicing legitimate complaints? Here you go. Congratulations. You won. And then wait. Wait a little bit longer until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters who were soon to be killed as they themselves had been killed. So these guys are in heaven. Yes. Yeah, this is under the under the altar in the throne room. Isn't this kind of the same image, though, that Jesus showed like throughout the whole New Testament? How so? Where he's not like a wrathful guy. Like, he's, he's patient and loving. And so these people are sitting there asking for wrath and asking for retribution. And he's saying, no, like, you have your victory. Yeah, so there's a couple of interesting things going on there. One, you point out they actually already have their victory. Okay, in death, they have won. Now, this is the same message we saw last week with the slaughtered lamb, right? Jesus wins not by fighting Rome Rome's way, but by letting Rome kill him and defeating Rome, overcoming Rome through his death. So we have the same kind of image here. You, you win by dying. But I thought you said last week that the reason that Jesus won through his death was because he defeated death. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And what is death? Sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember our conversation about Smyrna, the ones who, they're suffering, and Jesus says, now some of you are going to get thrown in prison for ten days, but be faithful, and you will not be harmed by the second death. And we said, whoa, 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 whoa. Go back and read that last part again. What about the first death? And he didn't say anything about the first death. In fact, there was a real possibility that the first death would affect them. And now we're seeing those who have been harmed by the first death. They, they died, and now they're in heaven under the altar. And they're saying, how much longer are we supposed to wait until you finish all of this? And, Jesus, and God says, here's your robe. A little bit of time. And again, the implication is you don't know just like we did the 10 days, you know, how, we don't know how long that was supposed to be, but God knows. It's a, it's a limited amount of time. So even though it might seem long, even though it might seem interminable, in fact, it's not interminable. It ends. And God knows what it is, even if we don't. Even if we here on earth say, how much longer do we have to endure this? God says, a little bit longer. Just wait, be patient, stay faithful. Now, there's also some really interesting language going on here. The fact that they are under the altar. Because in the Old Testament sacrifices, whenever a priest would sacrifice an animal, they would pour out the blood of the animal for the sacrifice at the base of the altar. Which is the same location that these souls are inhabiting. So there's an indication and some implication there that their suffering is sacrificial. That they are actually becoming like Jesus in in their suffering and in their death. Uh, and I want to read to you, uh, I just put the end of Second Corinthians 4 up here, but I want to read a little bit more than this to you. So you can uh, write that, it might even actually be written on your paper already. But this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, and he's talking about his own life and his own struggles. And he says, We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. 
This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus, so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. So Paul has the same theology. That suffering, that pain, that the conflict that comes from following God instead of the culture, from giving yourself wholly over to the gospel of Jesus instead of the gospel of Rome, is going to cause suffering and is going to hurt. It is going to be painful, but that is not evidence that you're doing the wrong thing. In fact, quite the opposite. Just the same way that Jesus suffered and died at the hands of the empire, that's proof in Paul's mind that you are joining with God and you're suffering through the power of God, not through anything that we do. Your suffering can actually also be sacrificial. Your suffering actually becomes redemptive the way that Christ's suffering is redemptive. You actually participate in his death. And we see that again played out in Revelation with this beautiful sacrificial image of these souls under the altar saying, how much longer? And God says, just wait. Just a a little bit. Now again, if you are the person who's living in the day-to-day suffering, that can be a, a powerful message. Saying, you're not crazy. And I know it feels like you just want to give in because you must be doing something wrong. Otherwise, life would be easy and life would be better. But you're not wrong. This is the same path that Jesus walked. Now don't be surprised when the same things happen to you. This is what happens. This is the pattern. We're going to see it again next week. Seal number six. This kind of flies in the face of the health and wealth of God for us. Yes. Absolutely it does. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked. And there came a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree drops its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll rolling itself up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Okay, I want to call a little time out. John is again drawing on a couple of other visions uh, from the Old Testament. First of all, Zechariah 14. Uh, we're going to be in Zechariah a lot during this book. I think I already said that. But if you get bored with Revelation, hop over and read some Zechariah for a while, and you'll be good to go. Uh, Zechariah 14. I'm going to read a little excerpt of, of 1 through 5 here. Zechariah said, Watch, for the day of the Lord is coming. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will split apart making a wide valley running from east to west. You will flee as you did from the earthquakes in the day of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all of his holy ones with him. So we have the earthquake, we have the splitting of the mountains, we have all of that. Uh, Isaiah 34, uh, again excerpting uh, 2 through 8. The Lord is enraged against the nations. He will completely destroy them, dooming them to slaughter. The mountains will flow with their blood. The heavens above will melt away and disappear like a rolled up scroll. 
The stars will fall from the sky like withered leaves from a grapevine or shriveled figs from a fig tree, for it is the day of the Lord's revenge. So we just had this question, hey, how much longer? And it, it seems that we have reached the day of the Lord. All of this imagery that John is using, the sun blacking out, the moon turning to blood, the giant earthquake, the sky being rolled up like a scroll, which is ironic considering that Jesus is about to unroll a scroll. Ironic considering they're probably reading from an unrolled scroll. Right, some nice imagery there for them. But all of these things are coming together and there's this huge, big earthquake, the huge end, big finale day of the Lord. And we're thinking, we have a lot of book left to go. What is going on here? Before we can go on, we have to answer a question. Verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the magnates and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, they hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath is upon us. And who is able to stand? So the end has come. Creation is being unmade. We're ready for the seventh seal, which seven means what in Revelation? Completed. Finished. Done. It's all, it's all unsealed. But then we get this question. Who is able to stand the wrath of the Lamb? And we wonder that along with them. And we're about to get our answer. Chapter 7. So let's read the uh, let's read the first eight verses, and then I want I want you to add, which is we're reading through this. Think about when is this happening? Okay. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage the earth or the sea or the tree, uh, uh, the earth and the sea, saying. Do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 sealed. Okay, now, question. When is this happening? Any ideas? Just before the day of the Lord. It sounds like it, doesn't it? Yeah. In fact, if you look, it says this. Um, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Now, that's actually how the four horsemen were referred to in Revelation uh, 6. Let me find where that was. Hmm, should have written it down. Anyway, um... So this is, an, this is an indication that this was actually a flashback 
happening clear back before any of the sealing, <coughs> the unsealing started. Okay, so we're having, if you've ever, uh, if you ever watched a movie where you're wondering, how did, how did that happen? And then you do a flashback and they explain all the stuff that happened before what happened. This is what we're seeing here. Uh, we're, we were asking all these questions, saying, who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? And then we're saying, oh, well, let us show you actually what happened right before Jesus started unsealing this scroll. So we go back, and this angel comes with this seal, and they gather 144,000, and then they seal them. So we have sealed people as we have an unsealed scroll. Okay? Now, the question is, who are these 144,000? Now, something that has troubled many a person is that if you compare the tribe list that is given here with the tribe lists of the Old Testament, it doesn't match. Um, the tribe of Dan is totally missing, and the tribe of Levi is actually not counted as one of the 12. They were the 13th tribe that didn't have its own land that lived among the people as the priests. And so right away we have John, who so far has masterfully incorporated the Old Testament into his vision, making what would be considered an extremely rookie mistake. Unless it's not a mistake. Why would he... Give us a mislisted tribe. Why would he get it wrong? Do these tribes even still exist today? Uh, two of them do, Judah and Benjamin. Two exist today. What happened to the others, guys? The others, uh, in, yeah, in the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdoms in 722, they were all dispersed. It was called, it was called the Diaspora, and they were lost. So they're actually referred to as the ten lost tribes. So, But again, Levi was not one of them, and Dan's not even in the list. So... We still, we still have the problem, in addition to the fact that, that 10 of these tribes aren't even identifiable anymore, we also have the problem of it's not an accurate list. of And any, any this is like first grade, you know, Hebrew school stuff. So why would he give us a bad list? And these were tribes of Judah, so the others were tribes of Ephraim? Uh... I mean, no. This is—it's the twelve tribes of Israel is what it's what it's referred to as here. But Ephraim had some of those. Didn't it? Uh, Ephraim was one of the twelve, and then you had uh, you had Ephraim and Manasseh, who were the two sons of Joseph. Who again, actually, Joseph's also listed in the tribes, and he wasn't one of the tribes either. His two sons were given. I would suggest to you this. Uh, I would just say that John actually is trying really hard to make sure we're not trying to keep, take this literally. Because this is, this is all, everything so far has been highly symbolic. But as soon as you have, a, as soon as you have something like a big number like this, 144,000, you're tempted to say, oh, how do I make sure I'm one of those? Uh, again, this is what the Jehovah's Witnesses have done. The, early in their recruitment strategies, they said that only 144,000 people are going to heaven, so make sure you're in. Then they reached 144,000, and they were like, we mean, uh, you can still come, um, okay, we got to change stuff. <laughs> uh, now, if you know your numbers in Revelation, what is 144,000? There's 12 and 12, and then we have 1,000, which would be 10 times 10 times 10. So 12 is what? Yeah, church in Israel, which again makes sense. We're dealing with the tribes. Okay, what's 10? Yeah, wholeness. And you multiply it by itself, it's for emphasis. 12 is multiplied by itself for emphasis. What, are, what, are, what is this number? The whole people of God, right? So what you see happening here is that the angel is gathering all of the people of God and he's sealing them before the lamb starts unsealing the scroll to protect them 
from the wrath that's about to come. The, this angel is gathering the whole people of God, 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10, and he's sealing them, he's protecting them, before the lamb starts unsealing the, the scroll, before all of this stuff starts to happen. So we just ask at the end of chapter 6, all of the powerful and the slaves and the free and everyone said, the day of the wrath of the one seated on the throne and the lamb is upon us. Who can stand? Who can stand it? Who can survive the wrath of the lamb? Good question. That's that. Ooh, thank you. <laughs> where? So where? That's a great question, right? So, the sealed people are saved from the wrath of the Lamb. So, where are the martyrs under the throne coming from? They're not coming from before, before, because it's seal five. Is that the multitude from? No, it's okay. We have maybe the Antichrist here. We have a, you're, you're skipping ahead to the multitude? Yeah. Okay? I'm sorry. No, 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 it's okay. Hey, you can skip ahead. It's all right. It's all right. Let me ask this question again. What does saved from the wrath of the Lamb mean? Does that mean you will not experience the first death? No. No, it doesn't. And in fact, as we've seen, especially if you stay faithful to God, it might actually even lead to the first death. So what does it mean to be saved from the wrath of the Lamb? Yeah, we're back to the second death thing, right? We're back to the fact that, that somehow, no matter, no matter what's happening in this first death, no matter what happens in the midst of this great cataclysm, that God's people are protected and preserved in some sort of more final and more ultimate way than physical life. Because they're obviously still dying. Uh, that's actually something that's taken from a little bit later when we get to the mark of the beast, which is put on the hand or the forehead. And so people have been guessing, like, what's this seal? Well, maybe if the beast is on the forehead, the seal is on the forehead. Well, just for fun. This is the only, I, interestingly, this is one of the few, uh, the few scenes in Revelation that doesn't have 17 billion Google images about it. I, I tried to find, I tried 15 different ways to put Revelation 7 into Google and sealed believers and 144,000 and all this stuff. And this was the only picture and I found it like 70 times. So I don't know why he's zapping them all on the forehead. It looks creepy to me, but they're all happy. So um, <laughs> they're getting their seal. So they're super happy. set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Yes, same idea, exact same idea, yeah. So the Holy Spirit is, and uh, there's a, uh, I think I think maybe it's in John, maybe it talks about the Holy Spirit as like a down payment kind of, well, and you hear that same language there, like, like the Holy Spirit is the confirmation that we are uh, basically safe from the second death kind of thing, that we are sealed by God, and yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Jerry, are you going to say something? Yeah, uh, this is redressing a little bit back to the white robes. But it's okay. I've got an NIV version, and the footnote about the white robe says to see two estrus, E-S-D-R-A. Oh, yes. And I can't find any reference <laughs> no. to estrus. Uh, second estrus is actually a book in the Apocrypha. 
the uh, yeah, it's one of the books that the Catholics include in the canon that we don't. Um, so I actually don't know what that says off the top of my head, but we can we can look it up. So uh, you can actually, if you don't have those books and you want them, they're all free on the internet. You can Google them and. Second Esdras is another apocalyptic book like Revelation where Ezra goes on a journey through the through heaven and the underworld and all of that. So it was written probably like 200 BC-ish. So my Bible says chapter 7, the seals of Israel. So what you're saying is that Israel is really the church. Yeah, because again, remember in the first century, they didn't make a distinction between the two. For them, the church was uh, like Paul says in Romans: "You're a wi- you know, you Gentiles, we Gentiles, we're we're an all, we're the wild olive shoot that's been grafted onto the branch of Israel, and so we are participating in the in the people of God. And you didn't actually see, uh, you didn't see in Christian literature there being uh, a difference between Israel and the church until probably like 150, 200 A.D." Uh, so, so again, at the time this was written to say Israel would have been the same thing as saying the church. They didn't, they didn't imagine a difference between those two. So, uh, again, I think that's another part of the reason the tribe list is so goofy, uh, because John wanted to make it really killer. Like, we're not talking about biological Israel at this point, which, again, you couldn't in the first century because those ten tribes, gone. So you had, you had, and that's, you know, Paul, that's why Paul's like, I mean, I'm an Israel, I'm a Jew, I'm such a good Jew, I know my tribe, like, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, how many people can say that? And not many people could say that, you know, it, uh, Jesus, the other one, Jesus, tribe of Judah, right, so, good. Other questions, comments? I love how talkative you guys are this week, this is awesome. Did you say don't sometimes make it, uh, was uh, yeah, heavily symbolic. The whole thing? Uh, uh nearly the whole thing yeah I mean even yeah yeah yes I don't know of I don't know of anyone any interpreters who don't interpret it symbolically I mean even like the left behind guys for instance don't think that a literal dragon with seven heads and ten horns is coming out of the sea like they, they say that's the antichrist right so I mean that's it's still it's still symbolic is that troublesome it's okay. Yeah, it's a good. I, I don't know. I've got to think that. Okay. Okay. Well, if you want to talk about it, you can bring it up again later. We can talk about it after class. Whatever you want to do. Right. Yeah. And that's that's just what I mean. Like that when we see these images, you know, I, we don't think there's actually going to be a guy with a bow on a horse. Like that means something, even if it's an army or like an antichrist or however you interpret it. It's a symbol for. Right. Right, that's that's all I'm saying. Yeah. Okay, good. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? Good. Uh, so now let's jump back up into heaven. 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white and with palm branches in their hand. Now, who is this? By implication, it's not the 144,000. Because why? Well, it follows after the the discussion of 144,000. Now we're looking back at it, saying unnumbered, 144,000 is a finite number. Good. Uh, now, what's interesting is that we've moved back up into heaven, though, right? 
And so again, this is where I was talking about that relationship between heaven and earth in here. And that everything, if you remember clear back when we talked about angels and churches and all of that, that everything on earth has a counterpart in heaven. And so this can be the heavenly representation of the 144,000 if the 144,000 is the whole people of God on earth. Because if the whole people of God on earth is 144,000, which is a number that we can all get our heads around, what happens when you go to heaven? I mean, what happens if you try to get all of the people of God that are worshiping in heaven? I mean, it would be a countless multitude that no one can number from every race, nation, tongue. So, so you're right. I mean, and your, your observation is exactly right. Well, it can't, it can't be the 144,000 because we moved. We're back up in heaven. It's, they're numbered. This is numberless. I mean, there's all of these kind of parallels back and forth, and then it lets, this lets these symbols kind of echo off of each other. So, good. Yeah. By this time in history, had uh, the gospel reached the whole world? I mean, this is what's implied here in this verse, right? Uh, yeah. From all nations. Um, so you even had even had as early as Pentecost this idea that there were people all over in all of the nations living. I mean, so when the Jews come back to to Jerusalem and at Pentecost, they they're speaking in all of these different tongues, and everyone's hearing the gospel in all of these different tongues. So there was this idea that especially after the diaspora, especially after Assyria came and scattered the ten tribes, the northern ten tribes all over the world, that God's people had kind of gone all over the world taking taking God with them all over the place. So, um, but, there, uh, there's, uh, there's a sense in which, I, I feel the tension of your question, which is a good one. There's a sense in which this is also sort of like a, a forward-looking celebration too. I mean this is this is all you know what's happening in heaven is the idealized kind of way everything's going to be when everything's finished. Just like we saw is God on the throne? Well yes, but is God's will being done on earth? No, it's not right now. But in heaven it is. In heaven these representatives of all creation, all of the like every, all of the churches in heaven are worshiping and bowing and throwing their crowns down and all of this stuff, but on earth that's not what's happening. We saw that even in just the seven churches that, that, that that's not all the case. So there's there is still also this sense in that that what's happening on earth is incomplete and unfinished and still like aching to be completed whereas what's happening in heaven is like is the like the perfected version of that, or like the... It's not bounded in time. Yeah, 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 yes. So we're seeing, I don't know if that if that helps kind of make sense out of that. Right. Yeah. So in heaven, there really isn't a time, like Earth. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's read what these people are all seeing. Because again, no big surprise, we're in heaven, we're going to be worshiping. So, verse 10. They, this nameless multitude, cried out in a loud voice, saying... Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God singing, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are those dressed in white and where have they come from? I love that they're all asking John like he has no clue and he has to be like, I don't know. You probably know, though. Why don't you just tell me? <laughs> John said, uh, I said to him, sir, sir, you're the one that knows. <laughs> and he said to me, they are, uh, these are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. 
And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them, and they will hunger no more and thirst no more, and the sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. tribulation as being a finite time event. Right. But that couldn't possibly be that in context with this. So that great tribulation, I think in this case, must span from the time of man, the beginning of man. Yeah. Kind of just like we've been talking about, right? Is, Is there ever a time when people aren't trying to assume God's place? And is there ever a time when there aren't consequences of that? No. You know, are there always people who are suffering for remaining faithful to God? Yes, there are. And they're caught up in this, in this, in this, and, and again, their, their song, what they are singing, and again, these are the people who have suffered, who have died because of their faithfulness to God, and they are the ones who say in verse 10, salvation belongs to our God. That is an eschatological statement. Who rescues me? Who provides for me? Who keeps me safe? Who delivers me from evil? That's what salvation means, right? Who does that? God does that. Not Rome, not any other human ideology. God does. And so when they're in heaven, and they're, they're there, they're at the throne because of this confession, that's what they're singing. They're affirming this thing that they knew to be true, even when it cost them their lives. They're like, yeah, we were right. Salvation belongs to God. And then the elder says, for this reason... They are before the throne of God. For what reason? Well, I love, there's a couple of great pieces of visual irony here. They washed their robes and made them white. In Clorox? No. In the blood of the lamb. Okay, I I know, I've never tried to wash something in blood before, but I've tried to wash blood out of things before, and I know that it doesn't work. (laughs) You will not wash something in blood and make it white. Except if white means victory, and the blood of the lamb is the death of Christ. So typology in the Old Testament where they would take the blood even during Passover and put it across the level of the door. Yep. Uh, there again, it was a washing. Yep. So you get all this rich, rich symbolism. And then again, towards the end, if for those of you who are fans of the twenty-third Psalm, the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Ironic, because you shepherds shepherd lambs. Not the other way around. But here the lamb will be their shepherd. And what will he do? He will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And then we have all... Did he say he came to bring a sword and not peace? Maybe since Jesus, it's all been tribulation. Well, and and again, there's a real sense in which before Jesus, it was tribulation too. I mean, and Jesus experienced his own tribulation. I mean, for what? For remaining faithful to God and not the way of Rome. That's what got him crucified. The tribulation started when man decided to try to be like God. Yeah. And again, might there be some particular seven-year ordeal coming? Sure. But we shouldn't let that blind us to the fact that right now we have real choices to make. We can't just wait and assume that we're all okay until that day comes. Like, we, we, should, we should be really focusing on that now. Are there Christians throughout the world today that if you said, uh, I hate your suffering, eh, not so bad, like it's going to be real bad later, they're going to be like, I don't know how much worse it could get. Like it's easy for you to say in America, you know, the worst thing you'll get is called a nasty name or something, I guess. But like there are people all over the world that are being 
killed for their faith, that are facing actual economic hardship. Could you just look at the South Koreans when they went to Afghanistan? They uh, beat them and killed the two priests. Yeah. The slaves are not there. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't too long ago that I think like six priests were killed in uh, outside of Baghdad or something like that as well. And yeah, I mean it's and again it's there there are lots of places in the world where it's a reality right now. Yeah. They say there've been more Christian martyrs in the last hundred years than in all history before. That wouldn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they count that for sure, but it wouldn't mm-hmm. it wouldn't surprise me. Certainly, it's certainly you know believable. Um. So we get all of this eschatological language here, right? I mean, so, you know, the, su- the sun's not going to strike them with heat. They're not going to hunger anymore. God's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. And, and we're expecting now, the, we're expecting the seventh seal, right? We've had the first six. We had this big question, well, who, who can stand against the wrath of the Lamb? And then we saw, oh, well, actually what you didn't see was that before all that unsealing business started, we actually sealed the people of God, and they were sheltered and protected from this massive, horrific end. Oh, okay. And we were taken up into heaven to see the, the heavenly version of that with all this worship going on and this, these powerful eschatological statements of salvation. And so then we get to the seventh seal, and I'm just going to read the first couple verses of eight because it's really, really huge and big. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Okay. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So that's where we'll pick up with the text next week. Silence in heaven for a half hour. There we go. That's the big... All right, so let's talk about uh, what would this section of the text communicate to those seven churches? You know, if, if you're in... Ephesus, which is the church, remember, that was really strong against the false teaching, but it had lost it had lost its spirit, it had lost its heart, and God was calling them to return to their love. What what would what would this text have communicated to them, do you think? The four horsemen. I would think you would want to run back to your first love. <laughs> okay, uh, sure. It, it's clear, it's nothing yeah. else. <laughs> Good. I, I can also imagine this giving those Ephesians a little bit of uh, false confidence in themselves. Like, well, yeah, look what happens to those false teachers. You know, I mean, we were right to drive them out. We we're, you know, I, I can just imagine some of them, especially if you're a little bit grumpy that John aired all of your dirty laundry to the other six churches. You're feeling a little bit like your feelings are a little bit hurt, and you're kind of like bolstering that with anger. I can imagine this being like, see, I mean, we were on the right track. Like, wait, wait, you just want all that. All that in here, and you know, I, so hopefully, hopefully they would listen to you and not to me. <laughs> uh, what about to the suffering churches, to Smyrna and Philadelphia, the ones where God says, eh, "Listen, it's not over for you guys. Hey, hang in there." Okay. I, I, yeah, I think that's such an interesting. Uh, it's, it's not the answer that we would expect or want to hear. We'd want to hear, don't worry, guys, everything's going to be fine. And it, it's like, well, yeah, ultimately, everything's going to be fine. We pray for, we pray for, you know, remove this now. Yeah. Do you think a lot of them left the church because of that? I mean, it's like saying, you know, you think it's bad now, you just wait. You know, I would, I would hope not. I would hope that getting to peek behind the veil 
and see what's really going on and see that the reason that you're suffering is not because you're doing the wrong thing, but because you're actually doing the right thing. And that's, that's, that's a tension that hasn't gone away in the 2,000-year history of the church. You know, Paul faced it. When Paul would go to churches and he would teach his gospel, and then he would go somewhere and he would get shipwrecked or he would get arrested or he would get beaten, people that were arguing with Paul would say, See? I mean, that guy obviously can't be following God right. If he were, things would be going better for him. And Paul, over and over, Paul goes, No, 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 no. Jesus, remember he got crucified, so I'm okay. But we still feel we still feel that today, you know. When 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 people run into rotten luck, one of our first reactions is like, well, you dealing with some unconfessed sin or you know, maybe you're just not maybe you need to get right with the Lord. And maybe they do. I mean, how do you know? How do you know whether Satan's attacking you or God is testing you? That was sort of the mantra that uh, Job's buddies threw out. Absolutely. They're like, Job, obviously you're doing something wrong because people who love God don't do this. And Job's like, no, actually, if God would ever show up, he'd set you straight. Or seeing God turn around and say, you better have Job pray for you. Yeah. You've been speaking wrong. Yeah. You've been speaking falsely about me. And that's a big deal. And so we see that, and you can just imagine that in these, in these two churches, especially if you knew anything about the other church, and you knew how prosperous they were, you know how easy they had it, it's easy to look at them and be like, maybe we are the ones doing it wrong. I mean, it sure would be nice to be as rich as the Laodiceans, or to have the reputation that the people in Sardis enjoy. And then they get this letter, and they're like, oh, okay, maybe not so much. <laughs> if you look at the epistles that Paul wrote, they kind of parallel with what you see in the seven letters of churches this is an encouragement mm-hmm. to the churches yeah there was a lot of judgment brought in especially the Corinthian church Paul had to deal pretty harshly with them but there was still an encouragement trying to do exactly what you just said trying to keep them going that, yeah you're on the right track right yeah and, and again the Peter says the same thing in the first Peter don't think that suffering means you're on the wrong track in fact quite the opposite if you are trying to pursue God and you are hitting roadblocks and obstacles, that's a good sign. Because so did Jesus. And don't think that your suffering is in vain. No, your suffering can actually be redemptive. God can actually work in that. What's a new twist on Romans eight twenty eight? Yeah. All things. All things work together for the good of those that love God, that are called according to his purpose. Things turn into good for those who are Yeah, all, all, <laughs> all things. Um, so, so put yourself in the shoes of Pergamum or Sardis, Thyatira, that have some of these false teachers in your midst. Now, we haven't really gotten to the heart of some of these issues of false teaching yet. That's coming in the next few weeks. But we haven't gotten there quite yet. So what would you do if you were in one of these churches at this point in the letter? You're you're being tempted to compromise, to embrace enough of the way of Caesar to make life a little bit easier for you. What John is saying is that Caesar's promises are hollow. You really can't trust him. So don't compromise. Yeah, don't. Don't. 
You're getting into a bed that's not going to take you anywhere good. And if you're, you know, poorly out of scenes. <laughs> same, I mean, same idea, right? And, and that, that's what Jesus told them from the beginning. Like, you've got to quit relying on yourself. You think you're so good and you're not. Salvation belongs to God alone. And see, uh, we have turned salvation into just a spiritual thing. Like, it's like your soul your soul will go to heaven and be okay. Which, you, I mean, you see in here. But for, for the ancient world, it was, a, it, was, it was not just about the eternal fate of your soul. Salvation was about uh, all aspects of your life. I mean, this was, again, this was the eschatology. Who is going to provide you with peace and prosperity and security and all of this stuff? Those are, those are real-world physical realities, things. Not just, are you going to be okay after you die, but actually, like, are you going to be okay right now? And who do you put your trust in to make sure that you will be okay right now? So when the, the countless multitude in heaven says salvation belongs to God, that's a powerful statement for people who have been martyred to make. Because you would think... You would think that they'd be complaining. You would think that they'd say, well, we thought that following you would be good, but all it got us was this. But they have a different perspective once they're in heaven. They have a different perspective on the other side of the veil. They understand that They understand that putting your hope for rescue, for salvation, for, for fulfillment in Rome, kind of like what you said, Mike, it doesn't take you anywhere good. It might seem okay for now, but ultimately, in the end, it doesn't play out well. It's a lie. All right, now for the tough stuff. Um, we have, yeah, we have enough time to turn around and get with some of the people around you. A uh, couple of questions. Uh, is, there a, is there an American eschatology, or are there eschatologies that we are exposed to in this country? And if there were such a thing as a Pax Americana, what would its components be? So talk about that a little bit. Talk about what eschatologies you've heard who's promised to keep you safe and secure. And, and what that means, what we are expected to do to enjoy that, that security, that prosperity, that peace. So talk about that for a few minutes and then we'll come back together and have a civil discourse. <laughs> Okay, I'm interested in what you uh, what you discussed. Were there ideas that your neighbors shared that you thought were particularly insightful, or things that you shared that you thought were particularly insightful when it comes to American eschatologies or just eschatologies that we are exposed to living here? Sure, okay. So you have soldiers in those wars, a lot of the soldiers, I would say, a 
considerably high percentage, really felt that when they were engaged in these conflicts, that they were uh, defending righteousness or defending Christianity. Okay. A strong Christian nation at the time, and freedom and Christianity was so strong in the country that they—that's—that's that's how they felt. That's what they were doing. They had this this uh, sovereign type marching forward, defeating the yep. evil. Uh huh. And I think that's switched a lot or changed a lot in the in the last say 25 years or so, where you know, as a, in my opinion, as a Christian nation that has moved into a gray area. Okay. Are we really a strong Christian mm-hmm. nation anymore? Or have we compromised so much that we're not really a strong Christian nation? So, so what would you say, um, what would you say is the, the what, what eschatological promises are those, like, modern-day soldiers defending? What are they, what are they hoping to achieve if it's not, you know, like you were saying before, is like righteousness and freedom and things, like, what would you say is like the shift that's happened? Well, that's what I say. It, it, to me, um, haven't been in a service, but haven't been in, haven't been active for ten years. Um, I've had a hard time saying that you know I was in a service currently fighting for the, the cause of Christianity. Okay. Um, I mean, some people might be able to just sit there and say that to themselves and be fine with it, um, but there's so much uh, in this country that's just fighting. That, that, that's you know, whatever religion you want to say, but mm-hmm. it's just like we've become this big. We accept anything. And, okay. And yeah. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. What what would you say are some current eschatologies? Because I think you're right that there's been a big shift uh, last fifty years, even I'd say. So what currently? What are some of the promises that are being made to us as citizens? I, I think he's right on there because. Uh, I was just looking last week. There's a woman, I think, a former president of Harvard, who came out with a book looking at the Civil War and uh, looking at some of the memoirs and letters of soldiers. Uh, and they saw the carnage and the death on the field, and they, they even questioned, can God exist? Or what we're fighting for exist if this, this can happen? Okay. Which is kind of back to Job's situation, right. you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and I'm sure a lot of soldiers probably have been in combat and wondered, you know, uh, uh, similar kinds of things. But uh, we have kind of made our Christian values secularized, or or uh, or, or we watered them down to the point where. They're not supposed to be faith-based, but we want to give, as a nation, we want to stand for freedom of all the countries, and we want to support all the countries from tyrants and mm-hmm. give them the faith uh, uh, or, or the the ability to uh, practice their own beliefs. And, and yet, uh, it seems like one of our main enemy, enemies now is, uh, is a faith that... Uh, lies in the face of all that and uh, how do we recognize them uh, like the captain down at Fort Hood that slaughtered about 15 of our soldiers and then he comes out you know this is his Muslim faith and and it's all right and and yet we want to recognize these people we want to give them tolerance even the Bible tells us to be tolerant to these strangers in our midst uh, Mm -hmm. 
uh, but we have to be careful about accepting their ideas sure. and their, uh, their methods. So what are the eschatologies that are being communicated to us today? What, are the, what, is, what is the promised path to peace and prosperity that we're told as citizens today? Well, one of them, obviously, is a strong defense. Okay. Just the best. Offense. Yeah, problem. right. Okay, good. Democracy. Okay. Freedom of speech. Okay. So I think there's a big push now to sell the government as being the answer to all your Okay. Yep. And, and one to well, echo off. The better. That's and, and one to echo off what you guys were saying. Another one is welcoming and tolerance of all beliefs. I mean, that that's one that's out there. Right, people say if you really want peace and harmony, like that—that that is one. Yeah, we're supposed to be acceptable to anything, everything mm-hmm. people want to do, mm-hmm. no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. We're being told you don't have to work to survive now. Okay, by some people. Right. Right. Our government. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking that, like, for prosperity in America, like the American dream is like you get a job and like mm-hmm. go. Do your job nine to five every day, and that's how you get mm-hmm. prosperity here. Yeah, how, I mean, how many of you were told, you know, you go, you work hard, you put in your time, and then you have a nice retirement with your family and your kids, right? I mean, that's American dream, right? That, that that's one, right? If you want peace and prosperity, this is what you do: follow this script. And for a lot of people, for a lot of years, it worked great. Trust the government with taxes. You don't even have to pay them; they take them, and they can distribute how how they see fit, mm-hmm. so there's helping individuals, but you don't have to actually have an active role in it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we can do it for you. Now in this election season, we're seeing some counter eschatologies that are coming out, right? Some say, no, smaller government's better, no, if you want this, I mean, right, it's, yeah. that's what always happens, no big surprise, if one group gets dominant, then the next time around there's going to be counter eschatology saying, no, 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 they're all wrong, we're right. that concern me the most are the things in common that are really counter the church. Like what? Just the ability to, to, to proselytize, to share, to talk, to... <laughs> the, the battle against intellectualism, to even have conversations, is, I mean, we're, we've become a society of sound bites, and both mm-hmm. eschatologies support that. You know, as you don't need to think, all you need to do is just, you know, just, just Twitter and, and, you know, just... <laughs> You know, just exist from moment to moment. Mm-hmm. You don't need to think. You don't even need to, you don't need to worry about God um, because we don't talk about these things. I mean, that's just that's what's deeply, I think, getting into our culture. It has been a part of our culture um, that's very anti-God. It's, it's very that's not, not even close to a part of what God would want. And the so-called separation between church and state, which really means uh, freedom not to talk about religion in the public square, which is mean to start an anarchist commune um, <laughs> what we what we are going to be continuing to take seriously throughout the course of this study 
is how we as good Christians living in the world today engage these issues. Okay? Um, I hope that these are things that you can that continue to stay with you. I hope that you continue to see more... Um, I pay attention more to the eschatological messages that are being communicated to us, and that we keep in mind that there is no human party or institution or ideology that can actually fulfill any of these promises. Okay, And that, that doesn't mean that you completely abstain from a political system, of course. Uh, but it does mean that we're just wise about when we hear these things, we go, hmm, we, we know which of these things are uh, are possible and which of these things are not possible. And we, we know where our true home and where our true citizenship is. We know that we are part of that countless multitude. We are part of the 144,000, and salvation belongs to God alone. So, for next week, chapters 8 through 11, we're going to cover quite a bit next week, but actually some of it's a little bit short. It'll be okay. This is where it starts getting weird. Okay? I know, it starts getting yeah, <laughs> So So, don't panic. Okay, you're going to get into the middle of the, the angel with the scroll and the guy measuring the temple and the two witnesses. And you're going to start going, what? What is happening? What is all of this? Um, just take it easy. How many characters can you identify? What things are familiar to you by this point? Um, focus on what's clear. And we'll sort out the rest in, um, actually in, in two weeks. Uh, next week, I will be in Atlanta at a conference. So... But I remember that. I kept, all day I was like, don't forget about cattle. Don't forget. So next week I will be gone. Um, if you still want to come and hang out, that's cool. I'll maybe have some food for you or something. You can talk about your favorite parts of the book so far or something like that. But I will be gone next week. So in two weeks we will come back and do 8 through 11. Uh, any closing thoughts or comments? I know we're a little bit over time. I want to respect that. Entitlement. Yes. I never heard of that word two years ago. <laughs> really? Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's pray together. God, as always, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather and to study your scriptures. We're grateful for the chance that we have to see ourselves in this ancient text, to see uh, the true patterns of sin that exist from empires all the way down to our own hearts. And we ask that during this next week, you would make us keenly aware of the messages of all of the people around us who are promising us things that only you can provide. We ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we sort out those messages and as we, as a community, as a, a group of brothers and sisters who all have been washed uh, by your blood, that we would together uh, discern a clear path to engaging these. Uh, we ask that as we continue to read through this book, that you would help us not to not to be afraid of it, not to be uh, ultimately confused by the confusing imagery, but that we would be inspired and that we would be wrapped up in the revelation of your son, Jesus. And we pray all of these things in his name. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. I'll see you all on Sunday and then, again, not next week, but the week after.